Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Our Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to open up your scriptures and, and look at uh, Christ through the, the Psalms, uh, how he was used in uh, Psalm 110, how the other writers uh, saw his glory in that Psalm and explained it and expounded upon it in the rest of scripture. So we pray that you would uh, give us a, a sight of that glory, Father, through our faith, that we would see the, the beauty, the majesty, the perfections of Christ, and it would encourage us and, and literally transform us, Father, through the, the power of your spirit into the image of your beloved son. We thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, how many people went out and bought uh, Bart's book after my recommendation yesterday? Okay. Probably shouldn't have done that. Uh, Bart is very, very difficult to read. I hadn't read him in like 20 years, so I thought, well, let me go and, and get the book and, and read it again. And it's very, very hard to read. So uh, from now on, when I make a recommendation, I'll make sure I've read the book within the last couple days. Because uh, if you did and started reading it, uh, it, it's not easy reading. So and I appreciate Breck doing that. You, that your experience, Breck, kind of wordy and difficult? And uh, Okay, well. All right, so I'll be careful when I recommend books from now on. Not just the... Make sure there's no error in it, but that there, it's uh, something that uh, the average person can read without needing to have a seminary degree, because it was rather difficult for me to read, uh, having a seminary degree. Okay, uh, we're currently going through, uh, this is supposed to be a, a series on the Psalms, uh, but we are taking uh, what I preached in Psalm 110 uh, in the, the services and showing how the writers of the New Testament use Psalm 110 in various ways throughout their, their writings. And remember, Psalm 110... Uh, it's basically divided into two parts. Uh, there's a part about Christ uh, being installed at the right hand of God, uh, his enemy being there until his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Uh, we saw that being used throughout the scripture. Uh, Jesus uses it in uh, the Gospels in various ways to show, uh, to sort of stump the Pharisees with a question. Uh, we saw how Peter used it in Acts chapter 2 in the Pentecost sermon to show the authority given to Christ through that session at the right hand of God to send the spirit, the, the spiritual phenomenon that they were witnessing was the spirit coming upon God's people and that authority was given to Christ. So he, in fact, is sending the spirit. Uh, we saw how uh, Paul used it in his prayer in Ephesians, that, that the power that we're given, that uh, comes to us through Christ, comes through the resurrection. And to prove that, he quotes Psalm 110, uh, verse 1. Uh, we saw last week how he uses it in Psalm, uh, or not Psalm, in 1 Corinthians 15 in order to uh, defend the resurrection, that the power of the resurrection uh, comes from the fact that Christ is at the right hand of God, and that enemy that is being described in Psalm 1 is actually the final enemy that Christ will destroy with the authority given to him at the end of times when he will destroy that final enemy, which is death itself. So, uh, and all those things had one thing in common. They all use the first part of the psalm, the part of Christ sitting at the right hand of God, where there's another major section of that psalm that deals with Christ's priesthood. Remember, his priesthood is after the order of what? Of who? Melchizedek, exactly. And it's used throughout uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews with that reference to him being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So we're going to go through book of Hebrews and show how he uses that as well, how he uses that second part as well. Um, 
Now, one of the problems that, that threatened the apostolic church was a, uh, a form of Judaism coming into the churches. Uh, we see this being fought in uh, Colossians in various ways, a, a form of elementary Judaism was coming in. Uh, Paul seems to be fighting it in uh, 2 Corinthians. Uh, we see a, a beautiful example of this in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, which we'll look at in a second. But uh, and the writer of Hebrews is dealing with this problem as well. And the way that they deal with this, it's a, it's a very uh, simple, very uh, common type of rabbinic logic. And what they do is they will show that the Old Covenant was good, but it was inferior. And they'll attach certain uh, reasons for its inferiority and then compare that to the New Testament and show how much better it is, how much greater the New Covenant is, and ask them, why would you want to go back to something like this? And you know they'll kind of puff up the New Testament, Old Testament, or the Old Covenant, and say, yeah, it was really good, but it was limited when you compare it to what is in the New Covenant. Sort of like a, a wife who uh, can't cook, serves her husband uh, porridge and, and grits and, and cold oatmeal every day. And the husband is kind of tired of it, so he sends the wife to cooking school. She goes to a, a cordon bleu school and becomes this, this excellent gourmet cook and starts serving him these fabulous meals, these five or six course meals. And after a number of years, the husband kind of grows tired of that and starts longing for the good old days before she went to school. You know, the wife might come in and, and plop down a thing of cold porridge on his plate and say, here, eat that. Remember what it was like. And it reminds the husband, yet it really wasn't what I thought it was. A lot of the, the times what the writers of the New Testament are doing to the Jews is that very thing, throwing up a, 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 a amount of cold porridge on their plates of the Old Covenant to show them how bad it really was under that. And a, a beautiful example of this, it, probably my favorite example, is in uh, 2 Corinthians 3, where the super apostles have come into the church, and they're trying to, to bring elements of the Old Covenant back into their lives. And, and Paul goes to uh, Exodus 33, and uh, he explains what happens there. And what, what's happening there is that, that Moses is going up to Mount Sinai, and he's receiving instruction about the covenant, and then coming down and explaining it to the people. So during these trips, going back and forth, up the mountain, down the mountain, up the mountain, down the mountain. And when he stands in the presence of the Lord to receive the covenant, these words, it says his face glowed. There was this radiance that came from his face from standing in the presence of the Lord. And when he came down to teach the people, that radiance was still there. And it bothered the people. They said, no, Moses, that, that's bothering us. You know, cover yourself up when you teach us. And so Moses put a veil in front of his face. So there was this pattern of Moses going up, receiving the law, uh, receiving this glory that, that glowed in his face, coming down, putting a mantle on, teaching the people, going back, removing the mantle, putting it back on, back and forth, back and forth like this. And Paul uses that as an example of, of the greatness of the glory of the Old Covenant. Look how great it was, the Old Covenant. It actually made Moses' face shine so much that the sons of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. Now, that's a lot of glory, isn't it? You think, yeah, that, that's a great permanent covenant that should ex exist forever. But he uses that to show its inferiority. He says, look, yeah, that was a lot of glory there. That was a great covenant. But it was a, a glory, a covenant that, that faded. The glory of that covenant left. When Moses went back up the mountain, that glory was gone, and he had to receive it again. And he says, how much greater is a covenant of the Spirit? where the spirit conveys that message instead of a fallible man. 
Uh, the covenant, despite all the glory that it had, was a covenant of condemnation. The old covenant didn't save anybody. It just condemned. And if that's how great the glory of it was, how much greater is the glory of a covenant that brings righteousness, that justifies? The old covenant brought death. How much greater a covenant that brings life? Uh, that covenant w- w- was fading. How much more a covenant that is permanent? He says this, Now if the ministry of death, this is the old covenant, carved in letters and stone, came with such glory. Again, the glory here says that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was a glory in the ministry of condemnation, that's the old covenant, the ministry of righteousness much far exceeded in its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. What a brilliant argument Moses, or Paul uses here to show the, the, the greatness of the new covenant and why you should not go back to that old covenant. It was a ministry of death, uh, a ministry that was not permanent, a ministry that brought condemnation. And despite it having this glory, when compared to the glory of the new covenant, it has no glory basically whatsoever. So, and, and the writer of Hebrews is doing this same thing throughout the book. Mo, uh, Paul uses it once here, where the writer of Hebrews is being used again and again and again to show why they should not go back under the power of the old covenant. Uh, it starts off with this uh, in uh, chapter 1 and 2, where uh, he's speaking of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of Christ over the angels. He starts out speaking about Jesus. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by his powerful word. When he had made purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, what does that sound like right there? Psalm 110, chapter, verse 1, right? Sat down at the right hand of majesty. It's just a summary of what is being said in Psalm 110. Having become much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, why this comparison with the angels? And that's what he does throughout the rest of this chapter, compares Christ to the angels. Which of the angels has he ever said, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Uh, He says angels are called to worship the son. Uh, The son has an eternal throne. He says, thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. That's Psalm 45. He's speaking of Jesus having this throne. Uh, The son, he says, even laid the foundations of the earth uh, and made the heavens. In the beginning, you, O Lord, that's Jesus he's speaking to, lay the foundations of the earth and the heavens, and they are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will become old like a garment and like a mantle. You will roll them up. They shall change, but you are the same. Your year shall not come to an end. Then he directly quotes Psalm 110 and asks, which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for my seat? So there's this exaltation of Christ over the angels. God never said this to any angel. So he's exalting the son in the eyes of the readers here. And the question is, why is he doing this? Well, in chapter 2 opens with these words, for this reason. Uh, what reason? Well, we must pay more careful attention to what we have heard so we do not drift away from it. And what he has heard here is the message that Christ brought. In verse 1, he says that God spoke in the old times through the prophets in many and diverse ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. So when he says what we have heard is a reference to what the Son has brought us. 
And he's juxtaposing the angels and Christ here because there, there's a, a tradition in Judaism that's well attested in the, Old, in the New Testament that the angels somehow participated in the giving of the Mosaic Law. Uh, Acts 7.38 says, this is, the one, uh, this is one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai. Uh, Galatians 3.19, Paul affirms this as well. Why the law then? It was added because of transgression having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise has been made. So there's other New Testament passages that speak of the angels somehow being involved in giving the law and bringing the law to Moses. And so you have this one law given, or this one covenant given by Christ, and this other given by angels. Now, because Christ is so much greater than the angels, how much greater is the message that he has to give? And he applies this by saying, look, remember in the Old Testament when there was a transgression. Remember how serious it was dealt with. But what happened when, when the Israelites transgressed God's law? There was destruction. Think of the Egyptians who resisted God's will. Think of uh, Achan who uh, disobeyed God and, and, and took uh, a spoil that was not meant for him. Uh, all these examples, I think of Saul. Think of the nation as a whole when they were cast out of the land. Why were they cast out of the land? Because they disobeyed God's covenant. And he says, and if you think what the angel spoke, the judgment that it brought was bad, think about how bad it's going to be when you disobey what the Son says. So there's this juxtaposition of the greatness of Christ, the greatness of his message, the necessity to accept that message because of the greatness that he displayed, the greatness that God gave him over the message of the angels. And uh, this is all throughout the book of Hebrews, all throughout the book, and we'll see uh, more examples of it as we go. Um, any questions or comments? I don't like this to be a sermon, although it ends up being that way sometimes. So any questions or comments, feel free to interrupt and ask. Any questions or comments? Okay. Any about, I should ask about last week. Any questions or comments about last week as well, but I think we're beyond it. Yes, Mark. Question, Rose, yep. you know, last week you mentioned Melchizedek and whether he was a Christophany or whether mm -hmm. he was you know, just a human priest. The, the question, Rose, I, I thought is how can Christ be in the order of Melchizedek and, and be greater than his, his predecessor. Uh, that would lead me to think that Melchizedek must be Christ, must be a pre... Uh, you understand what I'm saying? And this may yeah. get you off topic. You want to talk about it later, but that's all right. No, we'll talk about it. That's a good question. I did, I did some reading on that and studying on that during, during the week. Um, so your question is if Christ could not have been greater than Melchizedek, now, if he's in the order of Melchizedek, Melchizedek logically would be precede him, would be his predecessor in, mm -hmm. in priesthood. That would make him greater, like the Aaron was greater than the priest that followed him. Right. You see what I'm saying? No, not quite. Not quite. Well, could, wouldn't it be the same, I guess, with David? You know, been in the line of David? I guess the same question would come up. Yeah, I'm not following. My mind is drawing a blank on the logic here. Um, so you, you think there might be an equivocation of the word according? Yeah. So it's not chronological. According to, I'm sorry, it's the word order. So, right. According to the order doesn't mean chronological. That means <coughs> to the order, like the the priesthood itself. You know what I'm saying? Right. Yeah, I'm still trying to get the the comparison between Melchizedek uh, and Christ. Yeah. But, but the idea that because Melchizedek came before. Oh. Suggest 
chronologically greater, just as Aaron was greater than the priest that followed chronologically. Yeah, I, I don't think... The order there doesn't, is not meant chronologically, it's meant... <clears throat> According to the office. Right, a type of office. A group, yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's nothing that says that because something becomes uh, before something is greater than what comes after it. As I think, Mike, that's what you're saying, right, brother? That, that the fact that David came before Christ doesn't mean that David's greater than Christ. And, and yet we wouldn't say David's a theophany or a Christophany so, of so Christ. I, I can see the office. The office. Yeah. So like President George Washington and President X. Right, exactly, yeah, yeah. So they're just, they're just not a, an established pattern uh, that something before is greater than something that comes after. Um, and again, it, it's not a, um, you know, Melchizedek wasn't a type of Christ. It's just a, an example uh, of a priest king, that an order of priests that existed that God is saying that you're going to be like this priest. This is the order that you're from. He was a, a priest king. And there may not have been a, 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 a succession of lineage like there was in an Aaronic priesthood. It's just there's a priesthood that patterns the priesthood of Christ. And so, and now there is more of a connection there because we're going to see in Hebrews that, that um, Abraham submitted to Christ. The idea of getting a, a Jew to admit that Christ was greater than Abraham would have been ridiculous. I mean, Abraham was the greatest, and anybody that came after him would have been seen as inferior uh, to Abraham. So what the writer does here is he says, look, you know, when um, uh, Abraham bowed down to Melchizedek, you know, showing Melchizedek's superiority over him, um, you know, Christ was already in, in his loins at that time. You know, the, we were in his loins, so we, in a sense, are, are bowing down and showing our submiss submission to this order of priesthood. We'll see more of that next week. I'm just kind of giving a, a preview of what's coming yeah. up. But, yeah, they, 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 there is some symbolism there of by Abraham's submission to Melchizedek he's showing Melchizedek's greatness over him and therefore showing Christ's greatness over uh, all of you again more on that next week I don't want to have to defend that or, or explain that any more than what I just said so anyway um, let's see where were we Okay, yeah, the, the idea of neglecting the salvation brought by Christ uh, would be disastrous because of the greatness and, and the power of, of Christ over that of the angels. Now, if we jump to chapter 5, again, like I said, he uses this throughout the book. Uh, jump to chapter 5, he, he's comparing Aaron's priesthood with that of the priesthood of Jesus. Uh, again, everything in Hebrews is better. What we have is better. Uh, we're going to have a better priesthood. And he's beginning to show why the priesthood of Christ is better than the priesthood of Aaron, meaning that the covenant of Christ is greater than the ministry, than the covenant that Aaron ministered over. Uh, the burden here is not just to show that Jesus was superior, but also that, that his ministry was compatible with the other high priestly ministries, uh, that, that, that there's a, uh, a pattern here that both of them follow. Uh, first, Aaron's high priest uh, was taken from among men on behalf of men. Uh, he offered gifts and sacrifices for sin. Uh, secondly, the high priest uh, had to be gentle with those who he ministered to. He was a man of, of, of compassion. Uh, it says he can deal uh, gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is beset with weakness. So one of the marks of the uh, Levite or Aaronic priesthood was that they were, they were gracious men. They had compassion upon the people that they ministered to. Uh, they weren't cold-hearted uh, disciplinarians. They had compassion for the minister, for those they ministered to. Um, think of the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Okay? Who were the first two people, or the only two people, that walked by uh, the man dying in the street? 
who were they? A priest and a Levite. Those who should have had compassion. Those who was in their ministry, their office, their very nature to show compassion. They should have stopped. They didn't. A Samaritan did. So this idea of compassion was very prevalent in the Jewish mind, uh, which the Aaronic priesthood possessed. Uh, the problem with the Aaronic priesthood was this weakness produced what? What did it lead to? It led to sin. They had to make sacrifices for themselves as well as sacrifices for the people because their weakness uh, led to sin. And the final aspect of the Aaronic priesthood was that uh, he did not earn the privilege himself. Rather, he was appointed to it by God. So no one takes this honor upon himself so as to become a high priest, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. The point here seems to be that there was a uh, three fundamental principles that make the Aaronic priesthood. He had to be a man. He had to have compassion, and he had to be appointed by God. So the question is then, how does Christ's ministry compare to this? Because if his ministry is to be effective, if it's to be a ministry of a covenant better than an Aaronic priesthood, then it should be at least what that Aaronic priesthood is, and, and nothing less. Now, as far as being a man, uh, was there any debate about Christ being a man? And there probably was, but he dealt with this in chapter 2. He dealt very clearly with Christ's ministry uh, as a man in chapter 2. He says this, Therefore, since the children, that's us, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So yes, he had to be a man if he was to free them from the slavery of death, the fear that death brought. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but it helps the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So Christ must have been a man for three reasons. One, uh, to deliver men from the power of death. He had to be one of them to die for them, not angels. He doesn't help angels. He helps men because he was a man. Secondly, uh, he had to be like them in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. He understood men uh, because he was one. He was not some distant uh, being who never knew what it was to be a man. He became a man, therefore could have sympathy for them, and we'll see more of that as we progress. Uh, again, in things pertaining to God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So he deals with the humanity of Christ in chapter 2 very clearly, very logically, and very consistently. Um, so the first thing he does, he takes up his appointment. Um, Aaron was appointed by God, was Christ appointed by God as well? And the writer of Hebrews says, yes, he was. He was appointed as a high priest, uh, just as Aaron was appointed as a high priest in the Levitical. It wasn't earned, it wasn't deserved, it was appointed. Um, he quotes two quotes to demonstrate this. Uh, Psalm 2, 7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So Christ was a son as Aaron was a son of God. And also... Um, Again, the problem here is that priests were appointed from the line of Levi, which you've already seen. <clears throat> the problem with Christ was from the line of Judah. No priest could have come from Judah. So how could Christ have ever been a high priest? Well, this is where uh, the writer of Hebrews digs back in the psalm 
110 and quotes verse 4 and says, You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So Psalm 2-7 asserts that he was a son and that he is a king. Remember Psalm 2, as we saw, is a, a, a psalm about the reign of the Messiah, the kingship of the Messiah, who will one day come and rule over the nations, uh, destroy them with a rod of iron. It's called calls the nations to submit to him, uh, to give him homage, to worship him, uh, to pay respect to him, or lest they become destroyed by him. So it's established the kingship of Christ outside of Psalm 110, but goes back to Psalm 110 to show the priesthood of Christ. And again, it's after the order of Melchizedek. Now, this does two things. It shows, like Aaron, he was appointed by God. It also demonstrates that Jesus did not need to be in the line of Levi because he was of a different priesthood, a different line of priests. Now, he's going to explain the significance of this in chapter 7, but for now, he establishes the second condition of a high priest, that he be appointed by God. And he does that by referring to Psalm 110.4. Any questions before we move on to the second issue? Okay. Now, the second issue... It has some of a, somewhat of a problem. Uh, he was a compassionate, sympathetic priest like Aaron was. Now, the problem with this is that Aaron's weakness led to sin. Aaron was weak, therefore he had compassion, he had sympathy for those who are also weak and ignorant, but that weakness led to sin. And how can we claim this with Christ if he never actually sinned? Christ's weakness cannot lead him to sin. Um, as a man, Aaron was weak. He knows what it's like to have compassion for them. Uh, shared experiences uh, create sympathy, and that sympathy can be beneficial to helping those who have, who have, that, excuse me, have had that experience. Uh, for example, in counseling, let's say you have a, a group of counselors, and you have somebody come in who uh, has lost a child that wants counseling, and you've got a counselor there who years ago lost a child. Who are you going to, to put those people with in your counseling? probably the one who lost a child. There's a sympathy there. Uh, there's a shared experience there that allows you to help those people. We had in our church that I pastored, we had uh, two families uh, that actually lost children, a lost uh, daughter and a son. This is after they left, but uh, they became friends through our church and we maintained a friendship after they left. Uh, the one family lost a daughter, I think it was about 10 or 11 to the flu, not COVID, just a, a flu, just she died on the operating table. Um, and again, it was devastating. I mean, what it did, I mean, you don't really see grief or sorrow till you go to a child's funeral, even of a believing child. Uh, it's just horrible. And, um, but they persevered. They, they, they trusted God, and God got them through it. Uh, they grew through the experience. The whole family did. They have, had four or five other children. All of them uh, survived and remained faithful to the Lord. Uh, a year or so later, another family that they met through our church lost a son. And uh, immediately, as soon as they got news that they, this had happened, that family just, I mean, clung to them. Uh, they were the first to call them. They were the first to visit them. Uh, they, they stuck by them like glue. Uh, they were right there with them the whole time they were going through this suffering. Now, why did they do that? Well, th there was a, a shared sympathy there. And they knew that they could benefit these people. Um, uh, Geneva, with their experience with cancer, uh, people that have cancer seek her out. Uh, to get her view of things, get her understanding, get her help and counsel because they know she's sympathetic. And a lot of us have experiences that help us minister better to people who have those same experiences. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying here is that a high priest, because he is weak, 
because he is ignorant, because he suffered, is able to help those who come to him who are also suffering the same thing. And the question is, that is a great benefit of a priesthood. That is a good thing to have, knowing that you go to a man who has sympathy with you. He's experienced what you're experiencing. And the question is, does Christ have that same perspective? And the answer is yes, he does, because he also suffered. Not necessarily in the same way that Christ did, but, or Aaron did, but he still suffered. He's going to explain that suffering. Again, here's what it says about Aaron. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins as for the people as also for himself. Uh, again, so what about Christ? Can Christ be a sympathetic uh high priest without actually sinning. And yes, the author says, in the days of his flesh, he, that's Christ, offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death. And he, that's Jesus, was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, again, perfection through his suffering here, um, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, there are two things about Christ's suffering that, that always amazed me. Um, first of all, he lived his whole life in the shadow of the cross. I'm not sure when uh, his human mind was able to grasp the idea, but at some point, it may have been there all along, but at some point, uh, he came to realize what his ultimate fate would be, and that would be dying upon a cross. Uh, again, the most cruel form of punishment, a degrading, uh, a painful, cruel, wicked form of death, one of the worst ways to die possible. And he knew his whole life that that is where he was going to end up on that cross dying. Not only that, but he knew that he was going to have the sins of God, the wrath of God poured out for his people uh, upon him. He was going to bear that weight. And if you look at the, the, what happens in crucifixion, Christ never utters a word throughout all the crucifixion. The nails, the, the, the beatings, the whipping, none of that did he ever let out a word of complaint or, or pain. It wasn't until the sky was blotted out and the sins were poured upon him that he began to cry out. So the suffering of the wrath of God being poured out upon him was far worse than anything he suffered on the cross, any physical thing he suffered on the cross. This was on his mind throughout his life, that this is my face. We can imagine the, the, the distress, uh, the, the suffering that that put upon his back as he went through his life. Again, the giver, the sustainer of life, was going to actually taste death. Uh, uh, the Holy One of Israel was going to be treated as if he had sin. Uh, secondly, we often think that, that uh, just because Christ did not or could not sin, that that sin had no effect upon him, that he was somehow impervious to all sin. And that's not the case by any means. Uh, sin uh, still affected Christ in a very powerful way. Uh, Christ had an unfallen body, um, but yet he still experienced many of the effects of sin just as sharply as we do, if not more so. And I really do believe that, that he suffered much more than we did regarding sin. Uh, he felt sorrow, sadness, grief, things that are all going to be taken away in heaven. There's going to be no more sorrow, no more grief. Christ suffered those things during his time on earth. Um, 
there's one phrase in Mark 8 where uh, the way it's translated is he sighed from the bottom of his heart, or he sighed deeply uh, when he saw the disobedience of Jerusalem. There was this great sigh that came from the bottom of his heart, the sadness, the sorrow. It's a deep groaning uh, that he felt for the people of Jerusalem uh, for their unbelief. Now, the difference between us, our battle with sin, and Christ's is that Christ actually defeated sin, which meant he bore the full weight that sin could bear. We never do that. When we are under temptation, when we are bearing the burden of sin, we either fold like a cheap suit or God comes in and delivers us from that. We never feel the full effects of it. We never feel the full power of sin because something always gives. Either we do or God rescues us, where Christ, he felt Every power, every ounce of power, every scheming deceit that sin had, he experienced it because sin gave everything to him to try to defeat him, and yet he withstood it. So Christ's experience with sin is far, far deeper than anything that we'll ever experience with it. So he he took sin and and, and defeated it. And and defeat a foe, you have to experience the full power of that foe. Uh, C.S. Lewis uses an example. He says if there are two armies that are fighting, Uh, and one army is defeated, that defeated army never really felt the full power of that army that defeated it. Now, they may have had a whole bunch more reserves. They may have had more arrows, more power in the back, ready to come to the front. But the army, that army was expended long before the full power of that other army was given to it. And it's the same way with us in sin. We give in or we're helped before the full power of sin comes, where, where Christ felt it in all of its force. And he withstood it. So, yes, he felt sin. He experienced sin far greater than any of us ever will because he actually defeated it. Well, he had no um, ability to, like, it's like a pressure cooker. The pressure gets up on us and then we blow. <laughs> exactly. We either give in or God he, rescues us. He yeah. couldn't. So the, the pressure was so much greater. Like right. We, we have, uh, Hebrews 4 says, we have Christ can sympathize with us because of the pressure that he's doing. Right. No, it's good. He didn't, you're just echoing what I'm saying. He didn't have to give in to sin to experience its full power. He did without giving in to it. And so knowing that, uh, he's able to have sympathy for us, uh, to help us. Again, that, and that's the mark of a priest, of a high priest. Again, he experienced the power, the deception, the cunning, the strength and sin in ways that we simply never will. Uh, again, and this can help us when we're under the burden of sin. Uh, not just temptation, uh, but sorrow, the humiliation, the grief uh, that a sinful world burdens the sons of men with. Uh, all this he knows from experience and can help his brethren when they experience this. The high priest uh, ultimately fell to the power of sin, uh, yet he's still able to help those who sin. And Christ never fell under the power of sin. So he's even more able to help those who are under its power. So he did not sin like the sons of Aaron under the weight of sin. Instead, his suffering uh, perfected him. And I will recommend a book that I did read again this morning. So it is a, a readable book. It's a book called by a B.B. Warfield called uh, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And it's free. You can go to uh, monergism.com and read a PDF. But it's a, an example. Uh, he goes through the Gospels and shows the emotional life of Christ, the, the range of emotions that Christ displayed. And a lot of those emotions were displayed because of the burden of sin and unbelief that it had upon his heart. What he saw and what he experienced, a brilliant, I've read it like 
five or six times. It's such a good article. Uh, again, B.B. Warfield, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And again, it is readable. Um, so, and again, this doesn't mean that it says that he was made perfect through this suffering as well. Now, perfection doesn't mean uh, that he was perfected through some effort of his own, that he was imperfect, and suddenly by this uh, suffering he became perfect. Uh, it, the idea of perfect here means completed, fulfilled, uh, accomplished, as well as the idea of perfection, but it's a perfection that leads to a, a fulfillment of something, a, a purpose. Uh, one commentator says this, to say that Jesus was perfect does not suggest that he was imperfect before he suffered. During his human life, Jesus' perfection endured severe testing. Not of this testing, none of this testing blackened a single feature of his perfection. Jesus' perfection was the completion of someone who had faced trials, endured them, and learned to trust God through them. Jesus' perfection developed in an atmosphere in which he had his obedience tested and strengthened by the trials that he faced. Uh, there are times where we uh, try things or test things. We know they're going to work, but we just do it to prove that they actually are what they say they are. And this is the idea of Christ being tempted here. It was simply to show that his obedience was actually what it was claimed to be, that it was a perfect obedience. Again, it means that the suffering of Jesus experienced produced in him the obedience uh, he needed to perform the task that was before him. He had a task that was going to demand uh, ultimate obedience, going to the cross and dying there. And that obedience was proven throughout his life as he was tested and proved to be worthy of those tests. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So uh, Aaron's testing, uh, his uh, sin produced a compassionate priest. Christ produced not only a compassionate priest, but a perfect priest who could then offer himself as a sacrifice for sin to bring the eternal salvation of the people that trust in him. So not only was Jesus' suffering needed to help uh, his weak brethren, as it did with the sons of Aaron, but it was instrumental in his perfection so that he could be the source of eternal salvation. Uh, the salvation was done not as a high priest under the order of Aaron, but under the order of Melchizedek. And Christ, uh, the writer of Hebrews, makes a comment about whom we have much more to say. And he's going to spend two more chapters explaining, quoting uh, Psalm 110 a few more times, explaining how this priesthood is far better than the priesthood of Aaron. See, right now he's simply shown that it's compatible, that all the elements that made Aaron a worthy high priest are there. But there's more. And he hints to that in the idea of Christ being sinless and being perfect. But he's going to expand upon that in chapter 6 and chapter 7. Uh, a story I like to tell with this is... Uh, uh, Dr. Pentecost, uh, you know, you have, what's, what's the famous book you wrote? I can't remember what it is now. Things uh, to Come. Things to Come, yeah. Famous, famous dispensations. One of my teachers at DTS, I think my first year there was his last year. And uh, he, he used to tell a story in his classes of a trip he took to Mexico, Mexico City. And there was a, uh, the big uh, church had a, like a, a courtyard, big courtyard. And it, this was probably in the 40s or 50s. And uh, there was one day where the Indians could go and have their sins confessed. They had a, a little door where the priest was sitting, and he said there was this long line of Indians waiting to confess their sins. And um, a lot of them didn't get time. There was only a certain amount of time that they could do this. So the priest at a certain time would close the door, and all those who hadn't confessed their sins were just out of luck. And it says one time he came, he was watching, and the priest came out. 
and a lady came and just fell down at his feet. I mean, this lady, I mean, she, she literally thinks if her sins are not confessed, she's going to hell. That, that, that's how serious these people are. And so she just throws herself at this priest's feet and, and begging him to hear her sins. And, and the priest just basically kicks her with, her with his foot and continues to walk away. Okay. Not a very compassionate priest. The writer of Hebrews is saying here, our high priest is not like that. He has compassion for his people. He has a sympathy. He knows what we've gone through. He knows the, the power of sin. He knows its greatness. He knows our own weaknesses. Therefore, he's able to help us and not only help us, but to save his people from their sins. And next week, we'll look more at how this um, contrast between Melchizedek and Aaron shows that the covenant that Christ makes is far greater than the covenant that Aaron actually made. It's a better covenant.